You may be seated. I will stand you up in just a moment. I wanted to preface our text this morning with a more lengthy introduction, and then there's going to be a lengthy reading of Scripture. If you want to go ahead and put your finger in the mark of Ephesians chapter 1, that's where we'll be turning to shortly. As heritage has grown and we needed to make some needed adjustments to the ministry, it behooves us to collectively regroup so that we can all be on the same page regarding what the church is how we are to live our life, how we are to function together as individuals in this corporate body, and what we really are about. It is as much a question on ontology as anything else. The word ontology, the word of essence, the one of being. What is the church? Because if we don't know what it is... We will not know how to live, how to function, how to make biblical decisions with our lives, how we fit in. And this is a needed and timely message for us as we move into a new season. Those in the future of Heritage Meeting heard this message over a year ago at our meeting, and I think it's necessary for our entire church to hear this. So I trust that if you're one of those who's heard it before, that It will refresh the very principles both to your mind and heart. And this morning we're going to look at three chapters of Ephesians. We're going to consider what the church is. Then in the next few weeks we're going to break down and look at the application section from chapters 4 through 6. And we're going to break those down in a little smaller chunks for us to think about then how we should live. This morning, I want us to consider an important topic. It's an important topic because it's important to God. And one that He has revealed to us is one of the great secrets of living life with divine purpose. In our time this morning, I'm going to turn to the Scriptures and with a very broad stroke address the foundational truth that hopefully you will understand. It is the tendency for many Christians to focus merely on application. Just tell me what to do. Give me the 12-step process. What is the recipe to put it all together? And they tend to focus on that as opposed to really have an appreciation for who and what I am by the grace of God and who the Lord is. Is. And we tend to want this checklist, and we have a tendency to take the easy way out and not apply our minds and our hearts to understanding deeply who God is and what He is doing, what He has done, and what He will do. But the way that God gives us the answers for life is that we must learn doctrine, the teachings of Scripture. It's the whole reason He's given us this book of special revelation, because in ourselves we do not know how He is to 
be worshipped or praised or glorified, and we do not know in our fallenness how then we are to live. There are nine particular letters in the Bible that are written to particular churches. Two of those have a particular exposure in the New Testament. One of those is a letter written to the church at Corinth, a church that was a model for us not to be like. How not to be a biblical church. The other church that has a lot of attention that the New Testament itself places uh, in it is the church of Ephesus, of which the epistle we'll look at shortly. Because there is in this church of Ephesus much to follow as an example. We find that there are four major sections in the scripture about this church. The first one is its founding of it in Acts chapter 19. And the chapter after that, the second, was given instructions to that church on pastoring the church. He calls the elders of the church of Ephesus and gives them instructions on how to shepherd that. And by extension, the epistle of 1 Timothy could be added to that mix because Timothy was left at Ephesus to pastor the work there, and so that he, along with the church, Paul writes this epistle, that they might know how to conduct themselves in the church. The third major section of Scripture is the progress of that church that we see in Revelation 21, 1 through 7. It relates to something of their progress. As Christ is writing a letter to this church of Ephesus, he commends them for their labor. He commends them for their patience and endurance, their bearing up under pressure. The pains taking effort to discern falsehood in their midst, their perseverance, and one thing he had against them is that they left their first love. But in all those other areas, they really stand at the head of the pack of all of the other churches regarding an exemplary progress since their founding. And then the fourth major section regarding the church of Ephesus is found in the epistle before us, which was written for a very divine purpose so that the plan that God has in mind for the church might be known. And here you have in the little epistle of Ephesians, a theology and a doctrine of the church. Ephesians is a representative of what God intends for all churches, so it is here that we're going to spend some time over the next few weeks. So what is the church? What is it? What is its role? What is its mission? What is our function? How does all that relate to you individually as a member here or us collectively as Heritage Church? How do these things relate to our past? How do these things touch into our future? And if you don't have a good understanding of what the church is, why it exists, what your part is in her, you really don't know how to live the Christian life and what God expects of you. So it's time to kind of regroup us all in the Scriptures so that the heart of your understanding will be enlightened with the doctrine of the church. That's what Paul prays for 
in the first chapter. Now, when you put all these major sections of Scripture together regarding the church of Ephesus, you see a city that is evangelized, a church that is planted, elders that are instructed in shepherdology, revelation of the theological philosophy that God has in mind for shaping the ministry and the progress of that ministry as it grew. You've got a lot here for us to learn. So Ephesians serves as an exemplary resource to us as we consider the nature of the church. And with that extended invitation or introduction, I would ask us to all stand, and we're going to read in its entirety the first three chapters of this little epistle. So settle in, and let's enjoy the Word of God together. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. In Him we have the redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in Him. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him, who works all things according to the counsel of His will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance into the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places." far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, 
which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you also once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any one should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fit together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, For you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other wages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of grace of God given to me by the effective working of His power. To me, who am less than the least 
of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in Him, Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. For this reason I bow my knee to the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with all might through His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height, to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen and amen. Our gracious Father, we ask that your spirit would be poured out upon your truth and it would be unleashed into our hearts that you would give us a heart of understanding the grace of God so that we might be in awe of your grace and that we may give you the glory to whom it is due. Lord, stir us up with who we are, who we have been made to be by the work of God the Father through Christ and in the Spirit. And we pray this for your glorious name. In the name of your Son, Jesus, amen. You may be seated. We're going to consider now an overview of this book of those three chapters. Verse 1 begins the body of this epistle with God the Father. And what we discover in this epistle more than any other epistle, that this epistle is occupied with that member of the Godhead. It is a revelation and a description of what God the Father is doing. And what He is doing, He is doing through the Son. We have ten expressions in the very opening passage of chapter 1 that gives us in Christ and what God the Father is doing through Christ. The Father is the subject. It is what He is doing through Christ, but it is what He is doing through Christ in the church. And why is He doing this? And the answer is, for His glory. For His own glory. A glory He intends to have for Himself, and not merely for the ages past, not merely in our age, but for the generations and the ages to come forever and ever and ever, a continual glorifying of His 
holy name without ever ceasing. The magnitude of this is staggering and beyond our comprehension. God will get glory for Himself in the church successively for ages and perpetually for all of eternity. Fresh glory. Provided the people respond to the gospel call. And here in this life they walk and keep that call as herein revealed. Now, objectively, God is going to be glorified. The question is, will you be a contributor to that or a detractor to that? Anything less than what he is describing here will be that which detracts from his glory. This epistle is written and intended for you and for me so that we might understand how to be a contributor to and not a detractor from the glory of God. That is our purpose. There is a way to do good and right things, but in a way that does not glorify God. There is a way to evangelize the lost, but in a way that does not glorify God. There is a way to go about ministry, but in a way that does not glorify God. Oftentimes, we can think we are doing good. In reality, we are actually detracting rather than enhancing and contributing to the glory of God. And that's why we need an epistle like this. This epistle about, is about what God the Father is doing through Christ His Son in the church for His glory forever. Now, the second thing I'd like for us to consider is the approach that God takes as He reveals these truths. This section, this book has two sections. We just read one section. Section one is section one, chapters one through three. Section two is a practical application of that in sections or chapters four through six. In section one, this section that I just got finished reading contains almost no commands. In fact, it only has one imperative the entire section, and that's in chapter 2, verse 11, when it calls us to remember. It's the only command you're going to have in chapters 1 through 3. They're statements about something that is. This is something that is truth, not something that we go and do. Not in chapters 1 through 3. There will be plenty of that that follow. What these chapters have is something that God wants us to know. And that's why it's so important for us not to short-circuit the the process and jump to chapter 4, because He wants our hearts to know, to understand, and our minds to be enlightened. Three chapters of heavy doctrinal structure, line after line, verse after verse, word after word, And it is God's intention that we all go through searching those chapters. Searching out the breadth and the the width and the depth and the height of all of this. To come to the right heart understanding of who we are. We cannot be superficial with this knowledge There's no shortcuts here. You can't skip over the teaching and just go to the application section. 
The way that God intends this knowledge is that it will create in us an admiration for Him. And this admiration is what fuels the glorification of God. You can't take a shortcut on that. We have to learn who God is and what He's done for us that we can stand in awe Be overwhelmed with a sense of gravitas and the grace and the mercy and the gift and the pleasure of what God has done for us that we might with all praise Him. And that will never grow old if your heart has understanding freshly. There's not going to be glorification of God, where we contribute to this, if the people don't stand back in awe of God. And this all comes when your comprehension is opened up and the eyes of your heart can see. That's what Paul's praying. That's what chapters 1 through 3 is all about. What we need to know. Then in section 2, which is chapters 4 through 6, is the application. It comes in rapid-fire succession. And we'll look at that section over the next couple of weeks. We're going to break that down in smaller chunks so we can really tie it back to chapters 1 through 3. But we've got to spend the necessary time here in the doctrinal portion of it so we can get to the application. We have to know the doctrine before we know our duty. We have to have the creed before we know the conduct. We have to... Exercise the orthodoxy before we can get to the orthopraxis. So let's review these first three chapters. Now there's a lot here. And God knows there's a lot here. And he's not just going to pile it on to us. He's not just going to, it's like cramming food in our mouth to the extent that we'll choke on it. That's not how God approaches this. He's going to break it up and give us a different methods of which he's going to reveal revelation to us. And the first way he's going to do this is in a hymn. And the hymn is the opening verses of the body of this epistle given to us in verses 3 through 14. It's a three-stanza hymn with a refrain, a chorus. It has a repeating chorus. Stanza 1 is what God the Father has done in verses 4 and 5. And the chorus resounds in verse 6. And in what he has done is he has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. To the praise of the glory of his grace. The chorus. That's stanza 1. Stanza 2 we find in verses 7 through 11. This is what God the Father did in Christ and through the work of Christ in redeeming us and forgiving us of our sins as He sent His beloved Son into the world to bear our sins, to die upon the cross, resurrected, ascended on the right hand of God, now seated there. Why? To the praise of His glory. There's the chorus. And then stanza 3. Verses 13 through 14, this is what God did by the Spirit. He sealed us with the Holy Spirit, securing all the salvific benefits for us. Why? To the praise of His glory. This hymn is what He did 
in a Trinitarian fashion and in a chronological succession. In stanza one, this is what God the Father has done for you in eternity past. Before the foundation of the world, He chose you in Christ. Stanza two is what the Son has done in history upon the cross and what He bore there and in His subsequent resurrection. And then stanza three is what the Holy Spirit has personally done for us and is doing for us right now, sealing us as the guarantee, the down payment, so that everything is certain. That which He began a good work in you, He will complete it. You can be sure of it. And so we have the chorus to the praise of His glory. Don't miss that chorus. And what's notable here is we have two entire stanzas of that hymn that precede anything to do with your personal testimony from the personal aspect. And that knowledge will help you to understand better how to praise the glory of His grace because long before you did anything, long before you knew anything, God did everything. And now you come into the relationship with the Holy Spirit who illuminates what God has done and He's simply revealing this to you. There's so much theology in the first part that you could just choke on that, right? There are 14 different activities of God in that one three-stanza hymn in verses 3 through 14. This isn't what you're doing. This is what God is and has done. And those are the blessings for which we are blessing and glorifying God. The spiritual blessings that will never grow old to a fresh heart. And do we really understand that? No. Not really. Would he have us to have a fuller understanding of that? Yes. And that's why in verse 15, he begins to pray, Therefore, since I heard of your testimony, and I saw your love, I now pray for you. Now we're going to hear how he's going to instruct us through this revelatory prayer, this apostolic prayer. We're listening in now on the apostle that has been inspired by the Holy Spirit in order to know how he is praying for the church. And what Paul does here is he prays God's purposes back to him. Where did he learn that? He learned that in the Psalms. That's what we do in the Psalms. We pray God's purposes back to Him. So the second way of instructing us in these things is through this apostolic prayer, which consists of three things, but it's primarily about one thing. Verse 17, we see it's preoccupied with the Father. In verse 18, he's praying that the eyes of our understanding, the word understanding is literally heart. It's the word heart, that your eyes of your heart. See, what he's getting at is he doesn't want us to merely know an intellectual knowledge. It's not a mind knowledge. It's not a carnal knowledge. It's not a worldly wisdom. It is a heart knowledge of what God is and who God is and what he's done for us. Down here. 
He wants us to know three things in this prayer. Number one, he wants us to know what is the hope of his calling. His calling, God's calling, is his electing, summonsing of you unto salvation. He wants you to know that. Some Christians despise the doctrine of predestination and election. But in doing so, they despise the very knowledge that God desires them to know for His glory. So Paul prays that, I hope and pray that the eyes of your heart will know the hope of His calling upon your life. Number two. He prays, what are the riches of his glory? He wants them to know what the riches of his glory, so that you might be filled with all and give him praise. That is your divine purpose. Number three, he then wants us to know what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe. Now, if we notice in that particular, what he is emphasizing in that last petition of this apostolic prayer, he wants our hearts to understand something about God's power. The prayer transitions seamlessly from this apostolic prayer almost seamlessly into chapter 2, verse 1, where he focuses on our salvation experience. But what is the connection between our salvation experience that he gets into in chapter 2 with what he says at the end of his apostolic prayer about he wants us to know the exceeding greatness of his power? What is the connection that he marries into each other? And he says it here in this verse, that you will know the power of God that was exerted on your behalf. It's a power that can be illustrated like this. It's the same energy that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. I want you to know that power, to know it experientially. And that's not a far cry from where he goes in chapter 2, verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. He raised you up. See, you were dead. He made you alive. I want you to know this same power that raised up Christ from the dead has been given unto you. The illustration of Christ's death and resurrection by the power of God is not distanced from your personal experience. You are a walking and living testimony of the resurrected power of God. And that's what God the Father is doing through His Son in the church for His glory forever. He's raising people up from the dead. When you're listening to people's testimonies, you need to be listening for God's testimony. What God did for them. What God has done for you. My friend, God has raised you from the dead. 
You have now been a recipient of six terms that God emphasizes in a single verse in chapter in verses 19. In one verse, one of those terms is in verse 20. You're a recipient. He wants you to know this power. This mega false, the exceeding greatness. This is the word from which we get mega from. He wants you to experience the exceeding greatness. The second word of his power, this is the word dunamis, from which we get dynamite, which is working. There's the third word, it's the word energeia, which is energy. Of his mighty iskos, that's force and might. Power, kratos, the great dominion and strength that God has, verse 20, which is working. There's the verb form of energy. Energeo. Six terms that God wants you to understand and know and own that he is working in this And you are a beneficiary and a reception of this kind of power. Chapter 2 then begins the third major way of teaching us, instructing us about who we are. And he does it now by way of a description for what God has done for us individually, you and me. This is our biographical instruction in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2. He speaks about our past. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We were children of disobedience and objects of God's wrath in the deadness of our sins. That's in verses 1 through 3. You're just dead. And then in verse 4, this tremendous adversity, but God, who is rich in mercy, but God. He did not leave you there. It is beyond description. It is beyond your comprehension what God has done for you who were dead. Verse 8. Don't you ever take any credit for what you did in your salvation. For by grace you are saved. It's all of grace. Always has been of grace. It took 30 verses to get to chapter 2, verse 8. It took 23 verses in chapter 1 and 7 verses in chapter 2. And now here we are in chapter 2, verse 8, which clarifies that you are saved by the grace of God. It took 30 verses prior to that rich description of what God has done for you. 30 verses to make sure you get it in the right context, in the right frame of reference, because this is incredibly important for you to live for the glory of God, which is your purpose. Honestly speaking, we have made salvation a very small and trite thing. We have only a minimal grasp in this that we call salvation. We are not saved by our works, but rather by God's workmanship. And we just had 30 verses prior to your personal testimony in describing it. Of what God has done for you. 
before you were even born. After you were born, and what he's doing for you right now, you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And if you end it right here, you have three sections of teaching. You have a hymn in verse one, or chapter 1. You have an apostolic prayer at the end of chapter 1, which leads us right into your personal illustration from your own life. Your personal testimony, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Okay, now we understand ourselves individually. We understand some of what God has done for us. But chapter 2, verse 11, then all the way through chapter 3, explains to us and reveals to us what God is doing in taking us individually and putting us together in a group called the church. And what we now look at is what God calls a mystery. Six times he uses the term mystery in this epistle. Chapter 1, verse 9, chapter 3, verse 3, chapter 3, verse 4, chapter 3, verse 9, mostly in chapter 3, chapter 5, 32, and then in chapter 6, 19. This Bible mystery is not a, a whodunit kind of thing. It is information that is concealed in the mind and the purposes of God from all of eternity, and no human being or any way of discovery will ever find it out. It cannot be comprehended, it cannot be discovered by human means, but only by divine revelation. And that is what he is doing here. He's revealing the mystery it is something that God stores up in his own counsel until he chooses to reveal it. And that is what he has done all the way through the scriptures, all the way through history, all the way up until this point of history in which Paul now is ministering and revealing this mystery. In chapter 2, verse 11 and following, we have the unveiling of this great mystery. And if you were God the Father... This not be blasphemous here, but I want you to get into a frame of mind and ask the question, because it will help you. If you were God the Father and you had a son who is your equal, and your heart's desire is to give him something glorious, give him a gift, but he's already God of all, what would you do? What would you give your son. And here is the revelation of the mystery of what God the Father has given his son. You give him a people. That's what you're going to give him. A people created for him. A body of living people where he is the head. And then you get those people to praise Him for all of eternity for what He has done for them. And you take those people when they are dead, and you raise them up from the dead, and you raise them right of, out of the dead for something, for a divine purpose, and you forgive them of all of their sins on the basis of your Son's sacrifice, and something that no human would ever imagine, and this is what you would give your Son. 
Now you do that, and you raise them up to a glorified state in your own presence, under the headship of your Son, and they will praise you for all of eternity, and it will never grow tiring. When you create a body like that out of every kindred and tongue and every nation and every culture and ethnic background, you've got a beautiful variety, but a spiritual unity in a people that have been called the bride of the Son to the glory of the Father. And this is the unveiling mystery of what God the Father is doing through Christ in the church for His glory forever. That's who you are. Not you as an individual, but you as an individual, as a member of the body of Christ the church, He is giving a glorious gift to His Son, and you are a part of that gift. In chapter 3, verses 1 and following, Paul then has been given to Paul a very special dispensation, a very special ministry has been given to the Apostle Paul to be the one to reveal this mystery. This was not revealed to Old Testament saints. This was something that God had hidden up and stored up in his counsel until the right time when he brought it forth and he chose Paul to reveal this mystery and the nature of it. And the particular focus here is on the Gentiles being brought into the same body as the Jews in this commonwealth of priests and kings under the headship of his son. And this is another form of teaching here that God is using through this epistle Let me tell you about Paul. Now, I've told you, I've given you a hymn. I've let you hear him pray. I've given you a little biographical sketch of your personal testimony. And now let me tell you something about Paul's biography. And through this Pauline biography, he is now revealing to us what God the Father is doing through Christ in the church for His glory forever. And in this section toward the end of chapter 2, he tells us of another person of the Godhead. Up to this point, he's been telling us about the body of Christ. But a body without a spirit is a lifeless body. When God created man out of the dust of the ground, the next thing he did is he breathed into that body the breath of life, and then man becomes a living being. And so we have the body of Christ breathed into it by the breath of God, the Holy Spirit, and it becomes a lively, organic, living being. This body has a spirit. In fact, the imagery begins to change in this section. As we see in chapter 2, 19 and through 21, hear the construction terms, if you will. He uses the term household, Foundation, cornerstone, building, and holy temple. And while the church is called the body of Christ, here it is called the habitation of God by the Spirit. And looking at the Spirit's perspective, it is His temple. This is the place where God lives, where God dwells. It is His people, corporately speaking. It is the temple of God. This is the essence of the true temple. 
And it's a temple that is made up of living stones. Not the dead stones that we tend to think of, but living stones that they literally are organic and they're living and they intergrow into one another. So that there's an incredible unity with their melding together and in growing into each other. And this is God's holy temple where he dwells. And that brings us to chapter 3, verse 14. Because of all of this, Paul says, I bow my knee. And we're going to hear another apostolic prayer. This one is revelatory too. And you need to mark this prayer very carefully because in verse 16 he says, I am praying that he would grant to you, that he would give you, so that you may be able to, verse 18, to comprehend something that is, in fact, incomprehensible. I want you to know a little bit more this day and tomorrow a little bit more and a little bit more And the more you grow in the knowledge in your heart of this understanding, you will be in awe of what God has done, is doing, will do, so that you will perpetually glorify Him. He wants you to know the dimensions, the width and the length and the depth and the height. But but, but of what? What are these the dimensions of? What is the object of which he's speaking of? And, and this is a prayer that people desperately need answering for them. This is the depth, starting with the people who are dead and trespasses and sins. He makes them alive. Taking the Gentiles and making them one with the people of God. There is a geographical dimension here. And what about the chronological dimension? Starting with eternity past, working its way through history, continues for all of eternity. Note carefully the dimension he gives in in, in verse 10, which is almost a climax of this entire epistle. There's a dimension here which is difficult for us to comprehend, but what he is doing is something that he intends to do through the church for his glory, but it is that which, that which you cannot see glorifies him. So that the principalities and the angels, both fallen and unfallen, are now going to look at the church and learn of the manifold wisdom of God. Something that they did not previously know. Something that they could not know apart from the body of which God has made you to be a part. This is a tremendous dimension that goes beyond our comprehension. We are a part of a body that angels are learning of the manifold wisdom of God. And Paul prays that we might comprehend all the dimensionality of this. To love and to praise God. And this should absolutely astound us that God has chosen us, even before the foundation of the world, to be a part of what's going on here and now in this world for His glory. 
You're not going to see how it turns out until sometime way beyond your lifetime. But right now, He's got a purpose for you in this body. The splendor of this properly comprehended will never wear out and we will never plummet its depths and we will never reach the understanding of those dimensions, but we will constantly be growing if our hearts are right. As he begins to close this epistle, he says, you know something, people? God is able to do beyond anything and everything of what you ever ask or even think. This refers to the magnificence of what God is doing in the body of Jesus Christ. If you could just dream the most, the most astounding, marvelous, wonderful dream by using your imagination of what you think would be the most astounding thing in the entire world, the greatest thing you could possibly comprehend, it is far, far, far beyond that of what God has in store for you. He can do and He does do and will do beyond your ability to comprehend it. Why does he do this? He closes with this entire reason in chapter 3, verse 21. To him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. A perpetual glory organism as God the Father gives a gift to the Son and we are caught up in such glorious revelation that our minds will never for eternity comprehend or even imagine the depths and the height and the width and the dimensions of it all. Throughout all generations, from age to age, will be the praise of the glory of God and His grace. The church is this body. And the question here in the closing is, is this how you interpret your life? Is this the lens through which you view your purpose? Do you comprehend and and think about your purpose in life and why you are living and why God birthed you and why He has birthed raised you from the dead, do you think about it so that you live for the purpose of glorifying Him in everything you do from the depths of your heart, your attitude and your spirit and your disposition, the way you think and how you respond to other people, is this the grid and the worldview that you have? If it's not, you need to get it squared up with the truth. And then you will find your greatest joy. Do you see that God's salvation is not a compilation of just saving individuals? But rather, for His glory, He purposes in uniting them together collectively in one body, one Lord, one faith, 
one baptism, one God and Father of us all, one collective body, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, for whom He died and for whom He is saving. Do you view yourself in terms of that corporateness, that covenantalness, and find your divine place and purpose within that context for the glory of God? Are you genuinely and truly a living part of the body of Christ? That's a very deep and profound question. Is your life yielded to what God's purpose is for his church and for you in her? Do we truly understand that we're living stones, organically ingrown into one another from one generation to the next, not just in a single generation, but we are integrally interwoven in with all of the church fathers and all the saints of old and into each other and future generations who will stand on our shoulders are not just standing, they are actually intergrown into us. Do we understand a little bit of that when we pray for the unity of the bride of Christ? Can you say that it is your intent to comprehend the glory of what God is doing in His church, that it may become a living institution that praises the glory of God's grace? Because that's who we are. A lot of times when people think about what is the mission of the church, well, it's to evangelize. It's to make disciples of the nations. It's to edify one another. It's to do mission work. And all of those are contributing purposes indeed, but they are not the main purpose. The main purpose is to glorify God. That's who we are. We're a body that has been gifted by the Father to the Son, empowered with the Spirit of God, bringing us up into the unity of the Godhead itself to the praise of His glory. And that is our divine purpose corporately. And your divine purpose individually is to contribute to that in your own personal way and within the context of this body. The teaching that we have in chapters 1 through 3 is the teaching of the doctrine of the church. And that teaching is given there so that your heart may comprehend God's mystery. A mystery that has been hidden from ages past, but now is revealed. This is the the grand unveiling of God's scheme. What God is doing through Christ in the church for His glory forever. It's a perpetual glory organism. A gift of the Father to the Son. We are to love what God loves. We are to love what God glories in. This is the church. This is who we are. This is what we are about. This is our ontological essence in Christ. And the essence of what the church is and who you are in it will now drive us to the applications that we will find and pick up in chapters 4 through 6 in a few weeks 
which will absolutely make no spiritual sense unless you understand in your heart that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened in who we really are to begin with. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how thankful we are for this revelation of who we are, of what you have done for us, of what you have made us to be, and what you are, by your Spirit, making us to become. We are thankful for this grace, and we give you the praise that is due to your name, and yet we do it so feebly because of, the, of our ignorance of who we truly are, of the ignorance of our heart regarding the power that raised up Christ as the same power that is working in us, and we're so feeble. Lord, open up the minds of our hearts that we may see the glory of Christ, the glory of what you are doing in the church, the glory of this tremendous gift of which we are privileged to be individual members of. Lord, may we be filled with a sense of your presence and your awe of this tremendous, unfathomable, incomprehensible truth. May that grip our hearts now and tomorrow, for the rest of our lives, for the rest of eternity. Lord, if there's one here that's truly not a part, a living part of the organism, may your spirit work in him or her now, raising him from the deadness of his sins and trespasses that he might glory in what you glory in. He might praise you for the glory of your grace. Lord, work your spirit in applying to our lives that which would be well-pleasing in your sight. And only in a way that you can do. Lord, may we not be the same when we leave here today having heard who we are in Christ. And we pray this in his name and for your glory. Amen.